I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, the good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. If you've been paying attention to the news cycle over the past few weeks, you know that there has been a lot happening. There's fascism in Brazil, anti-Semitism in the U.S., bombs in the mail, and the U.S. Army coming to the border to meet refugees uh, for whatever reason. In all of that, there is also some pretty important and troubling promises from the president um, about changes to Title IX that would really narrowly define an individual's gender. While all of this stuff is definitely important, we don't want the impending danger to trans people to get lost in the mix. Yeah, so in light of all of that, this week we're going to talk to Blair Bullen, who is a person that I've known for, I think, about 15 years now. We first met at a Baptist church, and we were part of the same youth group throughout our adolescence uh, Blair is a really talented artist, and they identify as trans non-binary, so a really, I think, uh, kind of useful perspective given the experience that Blair had in a couple of Christian contexts we'll talk about soon. Uh, these days, Blair is also involved in a thing called the Reformation Project, which we'll hear more about, but the website describes the project like this. The Reformation Project is a Bible-based Christian grassroots organization that works to promote inclusion of LGBTQ people by reforming church teaching on sexual orientation and gender identity. Our vision is of a global church that fully affirms LGBTQ people. So they do a bunch of like grassroots organizing and education, and they provide a bunch of resources on their website that we encourage you to check out after the show is over. So we saw Blair's opinion because of their really specific life experience working in um, a Christian organization called InterVarsity. So if you're not familiar, InterVarsity is a Christian campus ministry organization that creates like student groups on college campuses that provide uh, pastoral types of presence um, where there might not be one. Blair's experience working with this organization ended up being pretty awful, to say the least, because of some like just theological disagreements, like, you know, who counts as people, <laughs> um, as well as uh, their orientation. At the end of the show, we talk about Blair's photography project called Queerly Beloved, uh, which you can view online, and you totally should, and we're also going to link to that in the show notes. The last time we asked you to look at art, it was John McNaughton, and this time, it's not, and it's good, so do it. So this week we're talking with Blair Bolin, who is a very old friend of mine, and really excited to have you on this podcast. We can uh, maybe ask you to introduce yourself first, Blair. Uh, who are you? What are you into? And uh, also, the bonus question is, uh, what mid-2000s evangelical band do you still secretly kind of like? Okay, hey, uh, so my name is Blair Bolin, and I am a person that is non-binary and queer, and I do design in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and other uh, fun photo, video things professionally, um, and do a little bit of uh, work with the Reformation Project, so 
yeah, that's fun. Um, let's see. That's the things that I'm into. And I just listened to Campbell this week and, um, let's see what else. Oh, I listen to Edison glass still sometimes. Ooh. Yeah. All right. Deep cuts. Yeah. 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 That's pretty good. Matt, what, uh, what mid two thousands evangelical band are you still into? Uh, five iron frenzy. I think I've said that before though. Um, that's not no, really shameful. Five Iron Frenzy. No, it's not. It's not shameful. I did listen to Tooth and Nail, some Tooth and Nail stuff on Spotify the other day, and uh, Fish Hook. Remember that band? But they spelled Fish G H O T I. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Loved, loved that band. Still, yeah. Dean, what, what about you, man? Lay it all out on the table. Oh yeah. Uh, it's hard. I wrote this question. And I still haven't actually thought of a good answer for it. However, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I did have a ringtone for a long time of uh, the band, a song from the band Emery, uh, and they're oh, yeah. uh, not a band that I'd probably listen to today, but I might listen to for like psychoanalytical purposes to find out like why I, uh, why I thought a lot of weird things about how human beings work, I think. <laughs> Maybe I would listen to that that record for that. Hey, at least none of us said MXPX, though. None of us said <laughs> MXPX, and that's good. We that's survived. <laughs> so Blair. This seems kind of like a weird, uh, a weird question to just throw out there, but I'm going to do it anyways. Um, so uh, Dean explained to me, and then I read a few articles about this whole thing that happened with InterVarsity. Um, so between 2014 2015, um, you worked for InterVarsity and then got fired for being bi, um, and it was, I guess, a pretty big scandal because uh, people wrote about it. So could you tell us a little bit about that? What might have happened? How did that experience shape you as a person? So yeah, I had worked with InterVarsity as a student. And then for a couple of years while I was in grad school, I was like a volunteer staff person. And then um, I was working for them full time starting in 2014. And that was when um, they had a like national conference of all the area directors and regional directors and all those other people who have more power. Um, where they decided to roll out this policy where they were going to start systematically uh, purging people who were questioning InterVarsity's theology about um, queer and trans people. So, yeah, basically my boss came back from that. And then at our staff Christmas party for our team, as I was, like, staying late to help clean up, she was like, hey, so we need to talk about whether or not you can still keep working for us. <laughs> um, because, yeah, I had just read Matthew Vine's book, God and the Gay Christian. And I had told my boss, like, hey, this book is, like, really cool and helpful. Um, after I had, like, I came out to her my first week of working for that team um, and was like, hey, so I'm by, but like I'm in a relationship with a dude and I just wanted you to know up front in case there's ever any issues with that. She's like, no, no, you're not going to have any problems. Little did I know I should not have trusted that. Um, so yeah, uh, at this Christmas party, we had this conversation. Um, and then I had to talk to our, like her boss, uh, who is the like lead area director or whatever. And that was just like absolutely heartbreaking because I was still like very, very into my Christian faith at the time and uh, like really believed that like pastoring college students was what I was supposed to do with my life. And then to get told like, hey, you are like just investigating <laughs> theology that is not like that is at odds with our theological statement. So uh, we don't want you here. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was real shitty. And it just devolved into this like months long back and forth with those two area directors and um, a national staff person who was, I think, so, I don't know, somewhere in the neighborhood of being like a counselor therapist person, but um, talking to her was really rough. But yeah, that was something that I was told I had to do if I wanted to stay on. And at the time I did. Um, and then it kind of culminated in 
me having this really shitty meeting with those two area directors, like in the student union where one of my students was sitting two tables away and I was just like having a panic attack. Um, and they were trying to like manipulate me into saying that I wanted to leave. Um, and then I finally was like, yeah, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And then they were like, oh, well, that's good because we were going to fire you anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, we wouldn't renew your contract anyway. So I was like, oh, good to know. So, yeah, it was just like a super traumatizing time. Um, and at that second semester in the spring was when I found out that this was like bigger and more systematic because I got connected to other staff who were in similar positions across the country. Um, and, yeah, that's how I met some of my people who are like my best friends now. Um, but yeah, it was just a whole big thing that made me extremely distrustful of Christianity. And I think my faith very much like started to unravel during that time. Um, so yeah, it was a very interesting shift, not only in like job stuff, but also like development as a person and my experience with Christianity in general is forever like fucked up by that. So yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. Yeah. Uh, that story is so awful and I get why it would be hard to, to, uh, trust Christians at all after an experience like that. Um, I mean, we've talked a little bit, uh, in the past, just between us a little bit about the university stuff and how all that panned out and how it sort of affected your faith. Um, one thing that I found really interesting, I guess, is how like, even though you have this kind of ambivalence or for a while at least kind of weren't really sure what you wanted to do with Christianity or the Christian community, you also have these deep connections to it or to people who are living within it. Um, I mean, earlier you mentioned working with like the Reformation Project and stuff like that. Um, so I guess like now a few years out from that, uh, that whole kind of uh, ground zero situation, um, where would you say you kind of fit uh, in terms of your faith or in terms of that kind of community more broadly construed? Yeah, so I have found ways to um, start dipping my toes back into the proverbial waters of Christianity um, over the past, like, year and a half. But before that, I, like, was not going to church, was, like, actively trying to stay away from situations that were very Christian because it was just so, like, triggering and, like... I have complex multi-layered PTSD um, and the Christian stuff is a big part of that. So like, yeah, I realized that this was part of my PTSD, which I had from other stuff. Um, when I was like watching this TV show called the Fosters and there was this gay teenager who went to a Christian youth group and I had a panic attack out of like sympathy fear for this fictional character um, because like, no, don't go there. They're going to destroy you. Um, and then he was fine, but I was not. Um, so yeah, I, for like, yeah, like two ish years, I just like, like refused to have anything to do with Christianity, which I think was good for me and healthy. Um, but yeah, I, because of the reformation project, that's, I'd say the main reason that I have tried to start figuring out what my relationship is to the entire like religious sphere. Um, cause yeah, that whole world is still kind of scary for me, but I was in the reformation projects leadership development cohort in 2017. And, um, yeah, there was like a shit ton of theological readings and history and um, like biblical scholarship stuff that I had to read for that. And that was interesting because it was the first time I'd cracked open a Bible in a couple years. Um, and yeah, I was just like having to write this like brief exegetical thing. And I was like, Oh, this feels kind of like I have some muscle memory for it, but it's also so strange. So mm. Yeah. I did that cohort and then like I worked with the Reformation Project for their fall conference, um, the national conference that following fall. And then um, 
I photographed their next year's leadership development cohort experience and then photographed their fall conference a couple of weekends ago. And yeah, it's just been really meaningful to, even though I don't personally believe most things in Christianity anymore, um, or like find meaning in them. It's still really cool to get to see a very, like to use a super Jesus-y word, like a very redemptive experience for um, <laughs> other like queer people of Christian experience. Cause yeah, like, especially at this past conference, the last night of like worship and um, teaching and stuff was so led by people of color. Um, and that's the type of context where I think I always felt like God was most present, uh, when I was still a Christian. And so, yeah, it was just like really beautiful. And I had this very bittersweet feeling like, wow, if only I had known that this type of like affirming inclusive environment existed where I could experience God in a way that was meaningful to me, um, like if only I knew that this was a thing when I still believed that God was real, <laughs> like, um, mm. that would have been so cool, but getting to see my friends who are still like, like whose faith is still very important and meaningful to them, getting to see them experience that was just beautiful. And yeah, I loved that part. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It is a very weird relationship I have to Christianity now because like it's an undeniable and unerasable part of my experience and my story but it's not necessarily something that I can see myself wanting to dive back into certainly not in the same way that I did when I was younger um because evangelicalism is fucked up as shit and (laughs) um yeah I've just got no interest in returning or trying to sort out how I could reappropriate what I had in the past. It's if I'm going to re-engage with Christianity, it has to be something that's totally new and totally on my terms, which is very hard to do. Um, yeah. So I don't know where it's going to go in the future, but that's kind of where I am now as like just identifying as somebody who is atheist ish, agnostic ish, but with significant experience in Christianity. No, that's, that makes a lot of sense. Um, could you maybe say something too, just really quickly about what the Reformation Project is and uh, you know what it's about for folks who, who don't know? Yeah, uh, so the Reformation Project is a nonprofit organization that's dedicated to education and advocacy for LGBTQ plus people in Christian communities. Um, specifically, the advocacy work that they do is working to reform church theology and teaching around um, LGBTQ plus issues. So um, helping churches to become more inclusive and affirming is the game um, and also creating community for queer and trans uh, Christians outside of churches. So like at conferences and through the leadership development cohort and stuff like that. Um, and that's been really important for me, but I know it is even more so for people who are still actively involved in churches. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a brief overview. Cool. Uh, well, a minute ago you mentioned, uh, how particularly bad evangelicalism is and was. And, uh, I think that on this podcast, we've definitely said as much a few times. Um, but this is kind of a question that maybe will shed some more light on that and is definitely more of an abstract question. So, um, but I'm interested in hearing what you'd have to say. So I guess, how do you think that, uh, evangelicalism shapes people's sexuality and sexual identities, or at least like, how do you think that it shaped yours? Oh, woof. Um, (laughs) so I was just having a conversation with some friends about like Joshua Harris and all of the damage that his work caused like to our psychological existence and to a lot of other people that we know. Um, and to really anybody that grew up in evangelical Christianity in the nineties and aughts, like getting taught over and over again that like essentially your sexuality in general is bad and you have to only like have sex when you're married And then all of a sudden the sex drive that you've been repressing for your entire life will magically become a good thing. Um, 
Yeah, it's just super irrational. And the fact that anybody thought that it was a good idea to publish essentially an expert styled book from mm -hmm. on relationships from a 20 year old blows my mind. Um, yeah, Joshua Harris wrote I Kissed Dating Goodbye when he was 20 and like a, real adults were somehow like, this is a great idea to publish. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, it ruined like everybody that I know it, to some extent or another. Um, so yeah, the way that evangelicalism shapes people's sexuality and sexual identities is so just like evil and problematic. Um, Cause yeah, it makes you believe that you should like hate yourself all the time. And especially if you're a queer person, um, then you just yeah, you believe that it's a good thing to hate yourself all the time. Um, and especially with, like, a lot of, uh, like, more Calvinistic theologies, like total depravity, that just gets, like, quadrupled when you're a queer person. Um, where you are supposed to think that you are the absolute worst and that you are so lucky that God, like, is so merciful to you. And yeah, just like your mere existence as a queer person, which I think is not the same for cishet people. Um, like, yeah, your whole existence is treated as bad. Like for cishet people, in a lot of ways, it's more like focused on your behavior, um, like whether or not you like have sex before marriage or whatever. Um, for queer people, it's more like your existence is inherently worse. So ugh, it's, it's just really brutal and it's such a hard thing to unlearn. Um, I feel like, yeah, I'm 27 and I'm only starting to scratch the surface on like correcting those harmful beliefs and attitudes. Um, and, oh, it's such a mess. It's such a goddamn mess. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't even know where to go from there, but it's, yeah, evangelicalism just fucks up people's beliefs about their own sexuality and teaches you to police other people's sexualities. And it's just really binary and awful. I can really resonate with that uh, for sure. I mean, you're, you're right that it is different for cishet people. Um, I remember, I mean, I've, I've read uh, Kiss Dating Goodbye and it is a horrible mess of a book. And uh, I just remember having, I mean, I have friends and probably myself too, I was shaped by it in such a weird way. Like, I, I had friends who like literally did not kiss their partner until they got married and just like lots of, you know, strange things like that. So I can only imagine how uh, it might affect um, non-binary trans people, et cetera. Uh, oh, just a, a real sure. mess of a book. Yeah. yeah. And I think especially like the whole like purity culture experience, like when you're yeah. taught that you're not supposed to feel a sexuality or like experience your own sexuality at all. Um, like, I had to basically like marry a man to realize how gay I was. Um, <laughs> and uh, like, I had known my whole life that I was like not straight, but I think um, being married to a dude for three years taught me that. Um, yeah. Like I, I can't do it. Like, I'm further toward the gay end of the spectrum than the straight end of the spectrum. I would still identify as bisexual, but, um, yeah, somewhere in the middle, but towards the, the gayer end of the spectrum. Um, but that was something that because I never believed that I was allowed to like accept any sort of sexual experience for myself, unless I was married to a person, uh, it just like came as a shock to me. Uh, that I was so not into dudes <laughs> um, most of the time. So yeah, it was, I don't know, man, it's weird. <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, it, it's like, it's weird. I can imagine, I mean, it's difficult to be uh, a queer person already in just normal society outside of Christianity and outside of all the baggage of evangelicalism. Uh, and I can imagine trying to navigate all that stuff, especially coming out of like working at university and like being really embedded in a, in a way of trying to like make sense of all this stuff and, and believing that, you know, you could like do a good job with it or something must have been really difficult. 
Yeah, uh, zero out of ten on Yelp would not recommend. <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess like coming off of all of that experience, um, one thing that's kind of weird about uh, situations like university, but also a trend at lots of evangelical institutions, is that policing orthodoxy and morality happen at a level of bureaucracy, right? So like there are beliefs, but there are also like real material consequences <laughs> for those beliefs. Um, so in the case of university, like there's these training sessions on orientation and chastity. Um, it's not just like accidental to your job performance or something. Um, and it's weird how something as personal as like your sexual orientation or your identity becomes built into uh, human resource policy or something. Why do you think that Christian institutions have to do that? I mean, that might seem like a really simple or banal question, but I think there's kind of like a lot to unpack there. Yeah, so my broader answer is because Christian institutions are inherently imperialistic. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, it's just this thing where it's Christianity at its core to me has so much to do with getting and maintaining power. Um, So it like within that framework, it makes sense to me that an organization like InterVarsity would want to create a policy that eliminates any possible dissidents from the organizational structure. So, yeah, it's. It's fucked up, but it's consistent. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. That's that's what I would say. Is that, like, yeah, policing orthodoxy and morality and, like, my existence as a queer person um, comes naturally to an organization that already polices so many other things um, mm. that are not necessarily related to job performance. Like, you can get written up for, like, moral failings that have nothing to do with how good you are at like pastoring college students. So like you can like, I don't know, like have sex heterosexually with like, if you're a cis person having sex with a fellow cis person, but who has different genitalia than you, Oh my God, you could get fired for that too. Um, or at least get like a slap on the wrist. But, um, that's so much more behavior driven than just having, like, a belief that I am not inherently more flawed than you are um, because I'm queer and you're straight. Um, Yeah, that is somehow just as problematic as behavior, which makes no sense to me on, like, a moral level, but on just, like, an observatory level, it's consistent with evangelical structures and systems. I think pointing out that like behavioral aspect of it is really important because especially so I I don't know, I can't speak for every sort of like Christian institution, but I can speak for the one that I work at and um, it tries to spin off sort of like um, it tries to spin off being gay as something that is solely behavioral and not like in terms of like some type of identity or orientation in the world. So instead of like, you know, saying like, oh, you can't be gay, it just says like, you know, you can't engage in homosexual activity or something. And there's a, sort of a, a dubious rhetoric to it all that um, makes it so much more, um, I don't know, annoying, I think, for everyone to understand what's really happening. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of really interesting work that Kathy Balduck is doing um, that would be really interesting to check out maybe for you, because I can't sum it up well enough, probably and succinctly enough, Um, but she's worth looking into because she's studying the entire history of like the clobber passages in the Bible um, Mm. and how those have been used and like language has changed and been like created and shifted usually by cishet white men with a lot of existing power who are just really homophobic and misogynistic. Um, but yeah, she's she's doing a lot of really interesting work on that. So like the differentiation in language between like you are gay versus you are like having or participating in homosexual activity um, is, yeah, it's fascinating because I think uh, Christianity more broadly has maybe accepted that like being queer is a little bit more of a thing and maybe something that you can't change, but you should at least still not act on it. Like, Mm -hmm. um, and that is 
in a lot of ways, that's kind of in a varsity's position and a lot of evangelical institutions' positions still is that they're like, okay, so maybe this is really a thing, but also, like, we don't know what to do with this, so just don't do anything. <laughs> so, yeah, which is funny, because, like, what is the homosexual lifestyle? Like, is me going to brunch? Like, is that the homosexual lifestyle? Yes, probably. <laughs> um, like, that's the real gay agenda, is we just want to be able to, like, go to brunch and knock it ever ass. <laughs> um <laughs> So, yeah, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's fascinating the way that the language has changed over time. Like, going from uh, the original Greek in the New Testament is, like, malakoi and arsenokoitai, which are, like, I can't remember what the best original translation is. It's, like, man-betters is one of them. And, <laughs> um yeah, it's just, it's fascinating, like, the way that the translation has changed over time. And the Reformation Project and Kathy Baldock both have really great and fascinating research and resources on that. Um, but, yeah, the language, I think, is what really, like, there's so much more power in the language that people use about queer stuff and theology uh, than they want to think there is. So a lot of it is just this kind of, like, we don't know what to do. We'll call it homosexual lifestyle. Um, and... Yeah, it just, it like, calling it, like, a homosexual lifestyle is, um, first of all, it's very, like, choice-based and, like, negates any construct of identity. Um, but also, like, again, like, is the gay lifestyle, like, me going to brunch? Yes. Is it also, like, me, like, dating women? Yes, probably. Um <laughs> So I don't know. It's it's gross. I don't like it. Um, <laughs> but it's important to know this kind of stuff so that I can like essentially beat evangelicals at their own game. That's part of why I love the Reformation Project so much is they've given me a lot of language and education that helps me be able to respond to people who want to use the Bible as an argument. And I can use the Bible just as well as they can um, to argue for more inclusion. So that's pretty cool, but it's something that I think a lot of institutions are not ready for. Yeah. Well, kind of riffing off of all of that a bit. Um, so I, I work at a Christian college and it has that type of theological document that says, you know, you have to, uh, st all students, all faculty, all staff have to sort of abide by a certain like set of community standards, which is, you know, like a, a way to police morality, like we just talked about. So, you know, you're not supposed to drink or do drugs or have premarital sex, which includes, you know, the, the homosexual lifestyle, the homosexual activity, et cetera. Um, however, like, you know, in light of being um, a group of people uh, who all are sort of combined in one institution um, and we all have to kind of like sign that and pretend like we know what it means even, or that we agree with it. Um, I know that there are like, queer students at my institution. There are, um, you know, people who work here who would identify that way as well. So do you think that LGBT affirming or identifying people have some kind of responsibility to, um, I don't know, avoid these places or voice their concerns in these about these types of policies? Or um, are there ways to negotiate these types of policies when you're living in that type of place? Yeah. So when there are these types of policies in place, either at Christian organizations or higher ed institutions, it is hard as hell to negotiate with them or voice any sort of um, dissidence. So uh, one example of this is like at Spring Arbor University um, in Michigan. Um, I know a fair few students who uh, either are there or were there and recently graduated um, who were trying to get the institution to, they called it like the cut the clause campaign, because there was a clause that specifically said that you're not allowed to um, promote anything that the university disagrees with. So that includes being queer. So like um, one person I knew had a rainbow flag in her dorm room and they made her take it down. Um, so yeah, anything that communicates that you don't hate yourself, they're not okay with. Um, so they started pushing back a lot more and it was, yeah, I just saw how much it cost them both personally and socially, um, to try to fight back against a policy that was so harmful. Um, 
and yeah, like even in my own experience working with uh, the queer collective and intervarsity, trying to get them to shift their views and shift their policies. Um, the thing is like, it costs them money to have us there. Like, because we're queer and regardless of whether or not the organization has any official stance, chances are their donors do. Um, the people who put money in their pockets have very strong feelings about my validity as a human being. Um, and they will stop giving money if the organization says that I am acceptable as a human being. Um, and like at the end of the day, these institutions are still going to choose money over humans every time. Um, I have yet to see an institution actually support, um, or listen to queer people who voice dissent, um, at these types of policies, like anywhere in the United States, um, and so, yeah, these types of policies are so harmful for a lot of reasons, but what they really highlight is the fact that, like, you can be a super, like, devout Christian and go to an institution like Spring Arbor, and you just want to be there to, like, get an education and, like, do that in a Christian environment that you think is meaningful to you, um, but... Yeah like they will treat you like you're there to make a massive like revolution happen, even if you're not. Um, Cause your very presence is revolutionary to them and they're, they can't handle it. Um, I don't know. It's just, yeah, it's something where I want to say we should avoid these types of places. And then I also am like, oh, but like we want to be there and it's not fair that we get told we can't be. Um, but yeah, it's super emotionally taxing if you do choose to be there, whether you are openly dissenting or not. So yeah, it's, it's costly. Like it is very emotionally expensive to be part of a religious institution when you're queer or trans or both. Yeah, uh, when we talked to Sarah New a little while back about the Church Clarity Project that she was working on, um, that was something she brought out too, was like the financial piece of this is often like the hidden piece that people don't think about. But uh, I mean, it's in, in many ways kind of one of the most important, right? Because if you come out on one side or the other uh, of a number of issues and people like pull the financial plug, then, I mean, you don't really have a church to like make a stand with anyway. Um, and that's the thing that like bars a lot of pastors or a lot of churches from being maybe more or less affirming than they might otherwise uh, feel comfortable being. It's a, it's, it's brutal. It's too bad that that's a piece of it, but it's a pretty major piece of it for sure. Yeah. You gotta have money to make a Christian church that meets in a building happen, apparently. Um. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, all right. Well, so we've been talking a lot about like Christianity and, and Christian communities, which is important because, yeah, this podcast about Christianity, leftist politics. Um, but I figured like it'd probably be a good idea also to talk about some of the politics surrounding um, trans and queer people right now in the United States in particular. Um, I mean, just the, the big news in the last couple of weeks has been that the Trump administration wants to change uh, Title IX to like more narrowly define gender as being only male and female relative to what genitalia someone is born with. Um, and But that's like one in, in like a long series of transphobic legislation from the right in the U.S., even like, you know, extending back into uh, the Obama years and, and obviously long before. So um, are there like any forms of sort of solidarity or resistance in times like that that you find like especially encouraging or meaningful? Are there is there anything that feels like tepid or like unhelpful or things that you're like, I really wish that people actually wouldn't do this? Um, you know, anything that kind of as you've looked around, you've just thought like this is what I would like people to kind of know about in that, that sort of trying to react to those kinds of uh, developments. Yeah. So I would say the biggest thing is like, I know that this is so par for the course, but it is something that a lot of like cishet people just don't do, uh, which is to just like educate yourself um, on what's happening to us because like the fact that it doesn't directly affect you shouldn't mean that you don't give a shit that it's affecting me. Um, 
so yeah, doing your own research and not just like asking your local queer or trans friend to explain everything to you. Like when it's taxing enough for us to experience it, uh, it's even more taxing for us to have to explain to you why it matters um, or like fill you in on details that you've missed. So yeah, that's super important. And then also like participating in like as many acts of resistance against transphobic legislation as you can, um, whether that's like big or small. So like, I want you to like talk to your transphobic uncle at Thanksgiving and like you collect your own people and deal with that shit. Cause like, I'm not there and I can't do anything to defend myself. But those, like, your transphobic uncle, like, his vote is going to affect my life. Um, So I need you to do that shit. And, um, yeah, that's really important. And also, like, participating in, like, bigger acts of resistance and, like, more public discoursey kind of things. Like, this was something done by actual trans people, not by allies necessarily, as far as I know, but the Trans Latina Coalition um, at the World Series Game 5 at Dodger Stadium um, just unfurled this massive banner that said trans people deserve to live. Um, And putting that out there into like a very public sphere, which a lot of people are like, why is this getting put out at a baseball game? How is this like the place to do it? But actually, it makes sense for that context because there's a referendum in Massachusetts right now, which is the home of the Boston Red Sox, um, to prohibit the protection of trans people from harassment in bathrooms at Fenway Park. Hmm. Um, So baseball actually is super relevant to trans people. Who knew? (laughs) Um, But yeah, there's there's big and small things that I think um, you and other like cishet people can be a part of for sure. But Yeah, the biggest thing is, like, educating yourself and then doing the work with your family and friends. Um, Because, like, we just, we can't do it all for ourselves. And there's not enough of us to, like, handle all of the people everywhere. Um, I think it's about, in the U.S. right now, I want to say it's about 4.5% of the adult population identifies as LGBT+. Um, And... So you probably, like, know some queer and trans people, but you know a lot more, like, cishet people who we really need you to, like, work on their homophobia and transphobia, biphobia, et cetera. Um, And, yeah, we can't be there. And even when we are there, we don't always have, like, the emotional energy to have those conversations. I think that's pretty good advice, um, and I'll take it. Good. Do the Uh, thing, Matt. (laughs) Yeah, I'm in. Um, I have I have a racist uncle I can tell all those things to, too. So it's, like, very applicable to my life. Good. Um, I knew about your uncle secretly. <laughs> Just kidding. We all have one. Yeah, they're all out there. The, the big, uh, massive uncles uh, and the racist uncle union. Um, the racist uncle agenda. <laughs> it's out there, man. Yep. The racist uncle um, lifestyle. <laughs> I need a great policy you. on this. <laughs> well, um... In addition to being uh, a good person who is willing to talk to us about some of these like tough sorts of things, um, you're also a really talented artist and photographer, and um, we should probably talk about that for a second. Thank you. Um, you did a really cool photo series called Queerly Beloved, and it's on your website, and I like I like what I saw. Um, so uh, from from looking at it, what I could gather was it's like you know um, a group of you know, you photographed queer and trans Christians and overlaid their images with photos of um, stained glass windows. That's a cool juxtaposition. Um, You say this about it on your website. Regardless of whether conservative, non-affirming Christians accept them, these amazing queer and trans people are part of the church. They're already holy, already beloved. The divine is present in them, whether or not Christians recognize it. So um, this is a pretty good um, artistic statement, I think, to go along with those things. It's an important thing to come uh, come back to that, like, Christians don't have a monopoly on deciding who's in and who's out, um, even if uh, their HR policies say so, <laughs> um, especially when it comes to uh, God's love and affirmation. 
So have you um, gotten any cool feedback on this project that you'd like to share with us or any other just thoughts about it? Because it's a really neat thing that we'll definitely make sure we tweet out to all the people that listen to this. Cool. Thank you. Um, yeah. So the majority of the feedback that I've gotten on that series actually has been positive. Um, and it's like the best possible artistic result that I could get from like a 1am wake up, like have an idea, write it down situation. Um, cause yeah, I was actually, this was when I was photographing the reformation projects leadership cohort in Chicago this past spring. Um, and I had like, been trying to go to sleep for a little bit and was kind of dozing off. And then, yeah, like one in the morning, I just woke up and was like, oh my God, this is a great idea. I'm going to shoot double exposures of queer people in stained glass. <laughs> um, and I think I didn't have the idea fully fleshed out then, obviously, because who can have a fully fleshed out idea when they wake up at one in the morning? Um, but yeah, I am so proud of that project and I'm so proud of the ways that it's been meaningful to people. Um, yeah, I can't recall any specific positive feedback, but just overall, it's been like a barrage of love and excitement about what it means for people. Um, cause yeah, it's, it's everything in the quote that you read from my artistic statement, but also, um, one thing that one of my models for that project told me was that he thought it was really fascinating that these stained glass windows are such bright, like flamboyant rainbow colors. Mm-hmm. It's like, Oh, that's a whole other layer. Um, but yeah, it's, just the idea that we don't need to prove anything to Christians in order to know that like we are already good and beloved and like sanctified or whatever words you want to use. Um, and yeah, we don't need anybody's permission to be those things. And so, yeah, that was really meaningful. I have gotten some negative feedback on it. Um, yeah, mostly just because, um, yeah, it's Christians who are like, well, we don't actually think that, like, you're not holy or, like, that God doesn't love you. We just think that you're bad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my, like, Christian bro voice. I don't know. It's a good one. <laughs> uh, very yeah. accurate. I just like went through years of studying Christian bros voices because they're the only people that uh, Christianity gives a shit about listening to. So I heard a lot of them. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know, man, that project was really important for me and is actually inspiring a lot of the type of work that I want to be doing artistically. I'm looking at um, doing an MFA now uh, actually in Italy (laughs) Um, so that I can study like the history of sacred art and then use similar methodologies to make art that honors um, queer and trans people. So like this week is uh, Dia de los Muertos and I want to do some like ofrenda related art that like honors like the queer and trans people that we've lost and I want to do like stained glass projects that honor people like Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, who are like the mothers of Stonewall, um, like basically taking sacred styles of art and applying them to people who the church has historically said are unholy, um, I think is really fascinating. So you can expect more work from me that will be in that vein for sure. Um that's awesome. I mean, send it our way for sure. We'll uh, we'll spread it around. It's really good, important work. I think it's just. I mean, what you were just saying is such an amazing, um, like, like defiant. Uh, but in a, it's a defiant piece of art. It's like a good piece of protest art, but in a way that actually doesn't feel like it's like some overwrought like. You know, it's not about like making some weird adolescent like punk statement or something. It's like, listen, this is just like how the world is, like whether you like it or not. (laughs) And it's like really beautiful and awesome, actually. Thanks. Yeah, it was funny. Matthew (laughs) Vines, who wrote God and the Gay Christian, who's now like my friend, which is very weird. Like I got fired for reading his book, basically, (laughs) or at least my firing process started (laughs) because I read his book and now we're friends and it's great. Um, 
But yeah, uh, he was talking during one of his keynotes at um, the conference uh, in Florida recently about he specifically dragged into varsity by name and it made me so happy. <laughs> um, <laughs> he was talking about uh, how like when he was a student in university and then um, at, you know, as he's watched the organization grow and shift since then, um, you know, queer and trans people just keep popping up and like, no matter how much they try to like eradicate our presence from their organization, like surprise, people are still gonna be queer and trans and like, they're gonna have like meaningful religious experiences that bring them to you. Um, no matter how much you try to get rid of them, like that's just gonna keep coming back and we're just gonna keep sprouting up. Um, so yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see if like our continued presence ends up changing anything, um, or if like by the time we've had enough of a critical mass uh, in evangelical institutions, evangelicalism will already be dead because it will dwindle slowly and die by itself. Um, so I don't know. Who knows what's gonna happen? But could go one of a few ways. Yeah, well, thanks for uh, chatting with us a little bit um, at this stage. We'll see where it goes. Um, if you, I mean, if people want to, like, follow the rest of your work or if there are projects that you're involved in that you really want um, people to know about, uh, where could they find that information? Uh, they can follow me on Twitter. Probably that's the best place to find it. Yeah, and then I'm All also right. building a new website right now. Um, it's blaircreative.info. It's Blair as in, like, the sound Blair, like, B-L-A-R-E, creative.info is my new website. Oh, great, great, great. All right, we will definitely mention that. We'll put it in our uh, show notes for the episode. Cool. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Blair. Uh, Hope to talk to you soon and look forward to seeing what is on the horizon. Thanks, me too. You guys are great. to the Magnificast. Uh, if you like what you heard this week, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. You can find us all over the internet. We're on Twitter at the Magnificast. We are on Facebook. We've got a discussion group there called the Magnificast Basement. Um, you can talk about this and other things as they come up. Uh, also, be sure to check out Blair's webpage. Um, lots of really, really neat resources there, and we are, we've got some good insider info that says there's going to be even more very cool stuff there very soon, so get on the ground floor of that. Uh, also, check out the Reformation Project. Um, they've got a, real, a lot of real, like really neat resources that you can use, I think, to help make sense to your uh, racist and transphobic uh, uncles. You can uh, defeat the, uh, the racist uncle agenda this Thanksgiving. Uh, all right, the music is by Amori Armstrong, and our outro is by The Illogical Spoon, and we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church, we'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no damn between us and our Lord